this particular day, I was working in a metal plant, trying to save enough money up to buy me a, uh, a TV. I was on the assembly line and I had a box cutter. I placed my box cutter down for less than a, two minutes. I turned my head, I turned around, my box cutter is gone. I was charged with an offense, which is a disciplinary uh, report, a class A, which is one of the highest, is the highest disciplinary report you can receive in the Tennessee Department of Corrections. I was put into the hole or administrative segregation for 28 days. And while I was there, it was the first time in my life that I read an entire book. What's up, damn givers? Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. My name is Nick LaPara, and as always, we're bringing you the stories of people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. This week is no exception. This also might be one of the shortest intros you're ever going to get from me for two reasons. One, it's an incredible conversation, but it's a little long. And two, if I start telling you all about my guest, I'll end up giving away vital parts of his story that I want you to hear from him, not me. So here's all I'm going to say as we begin here today. Let's get right into my conversation with decarceration advocate, Unheard Voices Outreach founder, and Nashville Community Bail Fund manager, Raheem Buford. Let's do this. It is such an honor and a privilege to have Raheem Buford on the podcast today. Raheem, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm excited to yes. be here. Yes, our our mutual friend uh, and beautiful human, Orion Paul, another fellow damn giver, mm -hmm. uh, introduced us. Uh, I saw the other day a story. He shared a story that he'd put together for you and uh, the organization you work with and founded. And I just, I love the story. I hit him up and I said, dude, I need to meet this guy. This is an incredible story. I've met and connected with and even told the stories of different people that have um, been in similar situations uh -huh. to yours. Uh -huh. and, and so this whole topic interests me deeply. And I'm excited primarily to, well, so we're going to tell your story. I'm going to have you tell your story. I've got lots of questions. And then I want, what I think is fascinating, what I want people to focus on and listen for is you came out of a really terrible thing yeah. Yeah. and you did not yeah. give up. You did not blend back in. You did not just like, uh, I mean, I'd be dealing with all sorts of emotions. And you said, <laughs> no, I'm going to, whatever happened to me, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen to other people. And you've committed yourself deeply in many different ways Absolutely. to do that. And so I'm, I'm excited. Absolutely. Let's dive right in. I want to get to know your early story. Okay. I want to get to know how you ended up in prison for the amount of mm -hmm. time you ended up in prison. Mm -hmm. okay. What were the circumstances around that? Um, yeah, give us a picture of pre-2015 okay. Raheem right. Buford. Okay, so pre-2015 would be 1971, the year I was born. I am originally from Nashville, Tennessee. I was born to a single parent mother. And when I came into the world, my mother had already given birth to uh, two boys. And the formative years of my life were spent in South Nashville, Nolensville Road, Providence area. By the time I was five, my mother um, met a man who was not my biological father, and they became very close. And we moved out to Northeast Nashville, Ewan Park, Brick Church Pike, Dickerson Road area. And 
we were in what could be considered a middle class neighborhood, but but we did not belong there in terms of financially. Mm, sure. And so we grew up poor. And what I remember early on as a kid is being in school as as young as in, in the third grade, kids talking about me wearing buddies. And there was a little song, Buddies, they cost a dollar ninety nine, buddies that make your feet feel fine. But these were uh this was uh, intended for an insult. Mm. And the recognition that I was poor. What were those? What are buddies? Like? Buddies are tennis shoes that cost a very cheap, cheap. cheap, cheap, very yep. cheap shoes. And my mother birthed seven kids herself. Mm-hmm. So I guess what introduced us to or introduced me to that world was my two older brothers. I followed behind them. It started off with stealing bubblegum, candy, and it just graduated to bicycles, burglaries, auto thefts. And at a certain point, I found myself caged in juvenile detention in Jolton, Tennessee for six months. Mm. And I was uh, 17 at the time, 16 turned 17. And what happened to really spin me out of control was my grandmother died. And my grandmother was that one person who I was close to in a way that it was like my mother because my mother worked a lot when we were kids. And so the connection was with my grandmother. And when she died, I didn't really know how to process that. I didn't know what was happening. I know it was like one of the first times in my life I felt pain and nobody hit me. Mm. There was a lot of physical abuse in my home growing up because of the way that I suppose- it From was, your dad, your mom, brothers? From my mom and from my dad. Uh, stepdad, mm-hmm. uh, right? It, just to carry over from slavery, using belts to uh, use pain to try to control behavior, but it didn't really work on us in the way that they thought because it made us rebel against that type of thing. And so, being in juvenile detention, my grandmother dead. I'm I'm on a pass to go to the funeral. I'm I'm having all these different emotions and I don't really know what's going on. And by this time I turned 17 and I made a decision to commit a robbery while I was on pass at a, for a funeral for my grandmother's uh, funeral. And I remember it like yesterday, Nolansville Road, away from town, very, very far end of, of, of the road, uh, these, it was a quick sack. I had my stepbrother with me from Louisville, my uh, stepdad's son. And I went into this store. And this is a robbery. And I shot a warning shot into the ceiling. I got the money. I ran. On the way back to where we were headed, I saw the police coming the other uh, opposite direction. And at the time, I didn't really notice it, but I was—I felt some kind of way. Mm. I would eventually kind of figure out what that was at a, at a certain point, but it'd be too late. And so that's how, that was the beginning of what would ultimately land me in prison after I got out of juvenile detention. How many months into your six month uh, juvie stint were you out on that pass? Was it almost over? Uh, or towards the beginning, when, I, when your I think grandmother it was, died, I think it was like 
not, I think it was the day of the funeral. I mean, they gave me like a three-day pass or something like that, or four-day pass. I really don't remember. Okay. But I know I went in February of, uh, of 88, and I got out in July, and less than nine months later, I'm charged with felony murder, where I had attempted to do a robbery where I shot a gun into the floor, and the bullet ricocheted, and it hit a guy. Mm. And that was 1989, April. I was arrested May the 5th, 1989. And from May the 5th, 1989 to June of 2015, I was caged. And that was for 26 years of my life. Seven different prisons throughout the state of Tennessee. I was a cellmate of three of my biological brothers, different brothers. Oh, wow. Five of us total had been in prison and, and, and in the same unit. I had a family reunion in prison. My biological dad had fathered 11 boys and I think four girls. My oldest brother, may he rest in peace, he passed away in 2011. I met him in prison. Met him for I, the first time? For the first time that in my memory that I can sure. remember. Yeah, wow. Because my mother had said to me in 1978, she, she, I remember like yesterday in the front yard, you know, your brother's in prison. I said, who? All my brothers are here. No, you got other brother. I said, really? And then that's what, I, you know, but I met him in 1993 at Turning Center uh, Industrial Prison and Farm. We call it Turning Center Vietnam. But that was like the, let's say the first, second, third, fourth, about the fifth prison that I had in a very short period of time, but one of the most violent uh, prisons that I had ever uh, been in. I saw 13 people murdered there. I was in a gang fight there. I survived. And I think my evolution to becoming the person I am today happened there. Mm. Uh, one quick anecdote experience that I had, mm -hmm. I was working in a metal plant. Turning Center is like a plantation. They had a, met, a metal plant, a wood plant, a sign plant. They had a farm. You, it, was like a, it was like a plantation. There were uh, over 700 of us there at that time. 99% of the officers were white. They had a picture of Nathan Bedford Forrest mm. and General Lee on the wall before you go into the uh, visiting gallery. So this was a place surrounded by the Duck River. So there's no escape. Mm -hmm. This particular day, I was working in a metal plant, trying to save enough money up to buy me a, uh, a TV. I was on the assembly line, and I had a box cutter. I placed my box cutter down for less than a, two minutes. I turned my head. I turned around. My box cutter is gone. I was charged with an offense, which is a disciplinary uh, report. A class A, which is one of the highest, is the highest disciplinary report you can receive in the Tennessee Department of Corrections. I was put into the hole or administrative segregation for 28 days. And while I was there, it was the first time in my life that I read an entire book. But what was unique about this experience is that for the first time in my life, I could see the images of, of the words and I could feel the emotion of the words. 
Prior to that, never happened before. The name of the book was On the Road to Babylon. I never forget it. Mm. But that was one of the most transformative periods uh, in my young life while in prison. And I left the hole with this appetite to read. And I read almost everything that I could get my hands on. My world changed because I began to question reality. I began to question power structures. I began to question my own identity in terms of who am I based upon what they were saying I was. Because once you are inducted, I, this is what I call it, inducted into the criminal legal system. Mm -hmm. They call it the criminal justice system, but that, that's a misnomer. Very. So we call it the criminal legal system now. And I wanted to know why my life had to be in a prison. And I, I trace my roots in terms of just reading all the way back to, to what I learned to be the transatlantic slave trade. I learned that my being in prison was directly connected to my ancestors, those who were African. And this is how the system became. And it was because of a, a, an amendment, the 13th Amendment. Mm that in one hand it said it abolished slavery, but then on the other hand it legalized slavery. So it said that it was prohibited except if you're duly convicted of a crime. Mm -hmm. And so I learned that my being in prison was connected to actual slavery itself. And then, and then I, I, I connected the dots why we made 17 cents an hour, 20 cents an hour. And it's wild. Yeah, I looked at all of that and I stayed on this path. I was introduced to Islam. My uh, birth name was Arthel Lawrence Young. My mother's maiden name, my last name. My name was changed to Rodney Buford because of my biological dad. I learned a lot about my biological dad through my older brother who had known him growing up. And my attempt to Remove the guilt that I was feeling. I felt like I needed to be forgiven. And so I embarked upon a journey to uh, find what, you know, I was told to be God. I was raised Christian, but I'd never understood it. Hmm. And I was ran out of a church when, on my own accord, when in prison, when it, when, uh, when, the prep, when the pastor said, is, is, if your dad is a rat, that makes you a rat. I left, I left mm, the prison chapel. That's and, tough to and hear. I, yeah, I ran into uh, who I learned to be this guy named Abdullah Jihad Jamie, who was a Muslim. And I just began to ask him a lot of questions at um, MALRC, Mark Luttrell um, Reception Center. And I studied with them, and I reached a point to where I felt like maybe I could be a Muslim. I studied, learned prayers, and one day I was, I was at Fort Pillar Prison, in the law library. And then this name came to me. It said Abdullah Rahim. And I, I guess in my mind, somehow I said, well, that must be my name. Mm. And I changed my name. Legally. Legally. And eventually I said, well, I don't want to feel like, you know, I'm running from my past. So I said, I'm going to keep Buford. And mm. then I tried to switch it back and they didn't go for it. The legal 
part said, you can't change your name again. You can't because it's illegal. And then I thought to myself, how can somebody tell me what my name is? Very true. They didn't make me. I'm yeah. not made by them. So I said, this is my name and this is what I'm going to go by. And so I just evolved and I continue to evolve. And um, yeah. Do you give, are you grateful for those 28 days in solid, what did you call it? Solitary confinement? Because, in the whole, you know, uh, in the whole, had that not happened, uh, you know, you wouldn't have, you know, begun going down this path. Like, are you, how, how do you feel about that? Obviously, it was probably a terrible time in certain respects. You know, obviously, yeah. the whole doesn't mean that it's a jolly time. Right. You know, it's a bad thing. It's a yeah. bad thing. But you yourself said you read a, you know, you read this book first, from cover mm -hmm. to cover and your right. first book cover to cover. And it just, it, it kind of, uh, you know, the snowball effect ever since in your life. So mm -hmm. how do you feel about that? It was 28 days amongst 26 years in prison. Yeah. So it was definitely, definitely a gift. If you look at it from the most positive perspective and it allowed me to understand or learn that, that I could be alone and I would be fine in terms of just being in that one yeah. space by myself. And so it did put me on a different, you know, a trajectory that I have no idea what I would have become had that not happened. I, there's no way to know it because I saw many young men butchered in, in, in prison. Yeah. And the path of knowledge, one of the things that I learned uh, in Islam is that I was taught that a man who was on the path of knowledge is under the protection of God until he returns. And the thing about knowledge is that you can never return because knowledge is infinite. So that's the path uh, that I began to walk. And in prison, there's a certain respect that's accorded to an individual who's trying to educate himself. And the old heads would always encourage me, young blood, stay focused. You're gonna get out of here, stay focused, keep reading keep studying. And I just followed their advice. And ultimately it, it, it happened, but it, it, it didn't take away the pain of things that I had to deal with. I, I had to deal with the fact that I had taken somebody's life. And that was no easy thing. It, and to this day, it still isn't because you don't know what that's like and, and, unless you, you actually do it. Mm. And it may be different for every individual. But for a person who didn't intend it, and I did not intend it, it in some ways heightened my guilt. Sure. And yeah, there was no, you know, you were you were kind of stuck in this bad cycle in life. But when you fired that gun, the warning shot, you had no intention of right. taking a life. Right. And so as 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 I matured and got away and got out of myself and figured out that you know it's not all about you. I was able to resolve that, but I think the most transformative experience that I had as it relates to my own reckoning is when my sister was murdered. And my sister mm. was murdered in the year 2000. You were in prison then. I was obviously. in prison and I got that call, I got that that call to the chaplain's office that nobody ever wants because the chaplain doesn't call you unless it's a special occasion. And when I got that call, I, I really knew, I knew something, but I thought it was gonna be one of my brothers. It, it, it didn't occur to me that my sister was gonna be, and when my mother told me, she said, your sister's been killed. 
and 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 I just didn't have any words behind that. But what 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 ended up happening is is that when I went to the wake, and this is after my father had passed, this is the second time that I've gone to see a dead family member. Mm. But this time it was different because I didn't have any emotion when I looked at my 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 biological dad in the casket. It was like this is a stranger. I don't know this guy. Mm. But with her, I knew her. Mm. That was my sister. She was born right after me. So it it and on the one hand, it added to my guilt. But on the other hand, and I remember it like yesterday as I'm looking at her here in Nashville, the entourage of guards, armed guards drove me and my brother, my oldest brother, to see her body, my oldest brother from my father's side. It's like it got silent. And, 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 and I guess I said it to myself that, so this is, I said something like, this is what you did to somebody else. Mm. And it's like, whoa, it's like, whoa. It's that's like, heavy, that's heavy. That's, it doesn't get any realer. And, and, and it's like, I, and I still think about that because I called somebody else's family to feel what I felt, but I didn't know the feeling until I felt it. And, and, and that changed me. Hmm. That put me on a whole nother course of how to become. And I reached out to a um, victim offender reconciliation program years after that. I'm, I'm trying to meet the victim's family. I'm trying to, I want to say I'm sorry. and. You know, only to be told that it's not permissible for an inmate to reach out to uh, victims. So that that was iced, mm. but it didn't prevent me from trying. And at this time, by 2002, I, I was shipped. This is slave language that we, we were using. They still use it today. Transferred from one prison to the next. They call it shipped. But shipped is a slave more, more term. More of that slave language, exactly. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, yeah, I was shipped to Riverbend Maximum Security Prison in 2002. And I had a culture shock in Unit 6 because it didn't look like prison. It didn't feel like prison. And it was scary because I didn't understand why people were not afraid mm. at this place called Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. Different than the other places you had been in. Oh, Way, way more different. And so um, that kind of helped me to get more in touch with my humanity when I saw people acting civilized in a way that it wasn't all about your back up against the wall, if you're always tense. And I went on the journey. Uh, my, my education moved into the academy. When I found out about Vanderbilt Divinity School classes being held and I applied for those courses only to be told that I didn't qualify because I had no previous college experience. And I thought that was really dumb. And so <laughs> uh, at that time, I had became the president of an, at that time, they called it an inmate organization. It was New Beginnings. I would get up and look into the window after the college students would come in from the outside who were not inmates and the professors and those who were on the inside that were able to be in that program, they would all sit together and study. I would go and look into the window. And about the third or fourth time, this white lady came out to the door and asked me, she said, young man, why are you looking to, through this window? I said, ma'am, I believe I should be in that room. 
And she asked me, could I write an essay? And I really didn't know if I could because I barely passed my GED. I failed the first one. And I said, yes, ma'am. I worked on it for a week. I took it back to her. Then a week after that, I'm taking graduate level Vanderbilt Divinity School classes. What was the essay on? Do you remember? Well, um, why do I think I should be in that room? Okay. Yeah. Why do I think I sure. should be a part of it? It yeah. was something like that. And I explained the best that I could that I wanted to know more about life. I wanted to understand the world. Just I just did my best to make up some things sure. that I thought that she might want to hear. Yeah, it worked. It worked. And not only did it work, but it introduced me to a different community. And for the first time in my life, I felt safe around white people. Hmm. Prior to that, didn't deal with white people. My stepdad made us hate white people. But these people were different. Harmon Ray May, rest in peace. Richard Good, who was over the, a professor at Lipscomb. Janet, Reverend Janet Wolf was American Baptist College professor at one time, and she helped us form uh, um, a school program called SALT, Schools for Alternative Learning and Transformation at River Bend, after we realized that certain people in the academy didn't, who were inmates didn't like certain individuals who spoke a different vernacular than those who were in those classes, and they didn't like this type of slang language people. It was crazy. But we, we, we created a new program, and through that program, I learned how to um, express myself and to become an organizer and to um, find my own inner power. And so I haven't looked back, and it was in that program, Vanderbilt Divinity School, that for the first time in my life, I saw a black man teach, Professor Dr. Uh, Dr. Uh, Forrest Harris. And I had never seen a black man teach in live, in person. Sure. And it just put me in awe because I was like, wow. I mean, this guy was brilliant. Yeah. And then I said, well, maybe I can do something on mm. that level. Or maybe I can learn a little bit more. And we got off to a bad start because he somehow he said, inmates. And I put my hand up. I said, excuse me, sir. And, and here we're all students. He had a moment and I had a moment. That's good. That's good. Because that's yeah. that's the thing about the system is the language that the system uses always dehumanizes. And if I can remove the humanity from someone, I'm justified in how I treat them, no matter how bad it is, because they are not human anymore. And so he had that moment. And when that class was over, it was the best class that I ever had. I'll never forget it. It was race, religion, and ethnicity in America, when it was over with, he said, when you get out, you have a scholarship to attend American Baptist College. And he made good on that promise. Not only did he make good on that promise, but he was at my parole hearings and he spoke on my behalf. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So 2015, 26 years after going in, seven different prisons during your time in, you get out. Get out. What, what, we're going to, we're going to, I mean, first of all, I have a million more questions for yeah, while well, you're in prison. We I want to answer them all. We'll, we'll, we'll do this again or we'll okay. do it in a longer form. Okay. We'll figure it out. That's but, fine. but, um, so you get out 2015, what part, what time of the year is it? And June. June. 
So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's summer here in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And what are you feeling? What do you do first? How are you processing it all? And then how long until you started uh, working with the Nashville Community Bail Fund? Okay. Um, yeah. Let's, let's try to link those two together all right, in this so next it, little bit. Okay, good. That, that, that takes me on a journey because first of all, I'm going to say it's indescribable, the feeling after I dealt with the fear. You went in as a teenager. Went in as a teenager. Now you're late, uh, well- Last part of my teens. Forties. Last part of my teens, all my twenties, all my thirties, and a quarter of my forties. Wow. Yeah. That's the context. And my third parole hearing, I finally get one vote. I need three more votes. And that that hearing happened in I think it was March, March or April. The pins and needles, the feeling like wonder because like will I get all the votes mm. because every time that I went who's voting vote, in this sort of a arrangement the parole board members okay. who are political appointees by the governor who don't live in the communities you never meet these individuals they don't know you they don't know you they're looking at words on a sheet and that's what they see but fortunately I had a lot of support every time I went up for parole I was protested by the victim's family understandable sure yeah and so I actually found out through someone else that I had actually made parole because I had stopped asking uh, the case manager. And he he said, look, somebody told me and I'm not going to tell you who it was. And I I was playing chess that day and it was in the evening and I went in and I found out and it just flooded me with, I was elated. I Happy times 10, relieved. And that lasted for, for a few hours. And then when it dawned on me that I would be leaving, I was sad. I was my brother's, the one that was born right before me, I was, we were cellmates at the time. He's still in prison. Mm. He's still at River Bend. So, and I was sad because I had a lot of friends that were still there. That was your family at this point. That was your community. These are your yeah. people. Yeah. And so eventually, June the 25th, I was released. And the day before that, Surprisingly, I slept really well. The anxiety didn't come until the next day. And I'm waiting in this holding cell. Um, my friend Melinda bought me a pair of pants. I, and my friend Wallace got me some shoes and a, and a cell phone. And I'm waiting in this holding cell. And I'm like, why? It's like 11 something. Why haven't they you know, came and got me yet? And I'm like, I don't know what. And they let you out through the back of the prison at River Bend. You don't go out the front. You go out the back like where they not take, like the, tra in, yeah, where they like take the, the trash yeah, out. Not like in the movies where yeah. the door is open. And no, you're, no. This place, we got out the same way they take the trash out. That's the way we went out. Because, you know, you, you really kind of like a throwaway. And I have pictures of it where I remember just throwing my hands up in the air. And I had a tan, golden color. Had my, my necklace on, Unheard Voices Outreach. And... I think my friend took me to Jay Alexander's, had a steak, potato, some wine. And um, I had saved up about $6,000. I was hoping I wouldn't have to work for at least three months or so. But, you know, you run out of money fast when you realize, you know. You don't have anything. That's, yeah. yeah. And so um, fast forward, I'm out. Fall comes. I immediately roll into American Baptist College. I'm taking two classes. And I'm in the behavioral studies program. I, I would eventually transfer that to the uh, entrepreneurship 
entrepreneurial leadership program. I have a bachelor's of arts um, through the Nashville Community, not, I mean, from the American Baptist College. But I want to work with the Church Defense Fund organizing team. Janet Wolf, Reverend Janet Wolf, the lady who gave me that chance to get into college. And I'm talking to her, going back and forth. And one thing leads to another. In 2016, I began to work with the Church Defense Fund organizing team where you know our aim was to uh, disrupt and dismantle the cradle to prison pipeline. I'm facilitating classes in the Metro Juvenile Detention Center, reading, writing, and dialogue. And in 2017, I founded the Unheard Voices Outreach, which our vision is, is that everybody leaving prison will be able to live a full, whole life. And, and the mission is, is that we advocate for persons on the inside, parole board hearings, through legislation, community, and we help um, develop re-entry plans and find people in the community to build bridges back. That's what we do. And so I'm still working with the, um, the Children's Defense Fund in 2018. I'm speaking at a church and the, pu the public defender, Don Diener, hears me speak about my story and I'm talking about how I believe that the public defender's office microwaved me through the system. And she eventually got in touch with me and wanted to know more about why I thought the way that I thought. And once she understood it, she told me she was thinking about creating a program that would create a client-centered representation and the board members would be people who had been represented by a public defender. And that happened. But she would go on to introduce me to the Nashville Community Bail Fund founders. And she said that one of the founders wanted to help reduce the prison population. He was already helping getting people out of jail. And they liked my presentation. I was trying to get funding and they asked me would I consider working with them part-time. And I said, absolutely. And I started working with them part-time in March of 2018. And the Nashville Community Bail Fund manager resigned in April. I had already learned the layout just by watching her and paying sure. attention. And I had organized their files and I was eventually about to set up this new system where we could collect the data and use Excel to do it. And I became the Nashville Community Bail Fund Manager. And it started in 2016. And so here it is, I'm coming in 2018. I think they had bailed out, I would say maybe 300 and some people by the time I At came on point, board. Yeah. And they were doing like maybe 12 a month. I came in, I pushed up the numbers to like 30 a month because I had a different urgency because I know what it feels like to get people, you know, to be in a cage and you can get out of a cage. It's like, I want you out. And we just, we started growing and growing and growing. And to this day, I've gotten out over 500 and some people out of jail who could not afford to pay bail. Yeah, so talk about that for a second because I don't think a lot of people mm -hmm. understand that uh, low-income people, people of color, disproportionately mm -hmm. stay mm -hmm. in jail right. because they can't pay the right. bail, which is sometimes five hundred, a thousand dollars. Most people, mm -hmm. I mean, most Americans mm -hmm. don't. They, they they admittedly don't have four hundred dollars mm -hmm. extra at the end of the month right. to pay a bill that comes up. So if you're if you're low income. Uh, you know, and you're in you for whatever reason, mm -hmm. you know, you're you're in jail and there's a bail mm -hmm. set. You can't you can't even pay right. that amount. So you got to stay in there, even right. though it costs 
them way more money right. to keep you in there, right? Right. Hundreds of dollars a day between mm-hmm. food and lodging and all that stuff, but they'll keep you in there because mm-hmm. you can't pay 500 bucks. Right. Talk about that because- Right. So the Nashville Community Bail Fund exists to bridge that gap of disparity. And what we have is, we term it as wealth-based detention. People with wealth can get out of jail. People without yep. it cannot. And in some instances, the person's bond could be $50. A bonding company won't touch that case because they would only make $10 on that case. It could be a $100 bill. They won't touch that case. They would only make $10 on that case, $5 on a $50 case. So they wouldn't take those cases. And so we pay the cash bail amount directly to the clerk's office. And that person is released the same day. And what this process is like is I would get a referral. I would look at it in the computer, in my email. I would go into the jail and I would go interview that person. And the, I think one of the greater things that we do is that we humanize the individual. Because I'm not just talking. I'm, I want to know your name. I want to know what's going on in your mm. life. What caused this? Not to tell me about the crime, but something happened before that happened. What is that? And what can we do to help you? And in most cases, they just want to get out. We connect with their family members, their loved ones, their girlfriends, whomever. And the only thing that they have to do is promise to go back to court and that they will stay in communication with us. And what we do, we email them um, 10 days before that court date. But the same day they get out, we make sure that they have that court date through email, text, and they have to call me and send me a text back saying, my name is so-and-so and I'm out. And um, that's been my work since April of 2018. And I really enjoy this, this, this work because you can see the instant results. We have a revolving fund. So when that case is resolved, and it takes about 90 days for a case to be resolved, I think what's very important to be known is that over 50, 53% of the cases that we have had of the participants, they've been dismissed. Dismissed or found not guilty. We can't tell you how many people, if they were not released through us, would probably just plead guilty. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's happening. 20% of the people are mentally ill. Over 50% or about 50% of the cases of domestic violence, people just had bad days and somebody else called the police. So, um, I mean, it's really fulfilling work and you get to see the instant results. And I mean, I feel in some ways privileged just to be able to do this work because my work is about decarceration. I want to see people out of cages. I mean, whether I'm in trying to help somebody get out and I'm speaking at their parole hearing, or I'm trying to find an attorney for somebody who has filed for a post-conviction, or I'm trying to get 10, 20 people to go to court with me to watch a judge during a post-conviction hearing, or whatever this work encompasses. I never really just know what my work is going to be as it relates to yeah. unheard voices. But for the bail fund, the mission run smoothly, efficiently, effectively. And of course, now we're going through some things uh, with the courts because some bonding companies apparently have problems with us. And then some judges are saying that some people haven't gone back to court. So what's the problem? Out of 800 and some uh, people, less than 50, you know, may have not gone to court. I mean, come on, what's the numbers on that? What's right. it really all about? Yeah. I mean, we, we spent 1.8 million on bails wow Already. is that all funded by just uh donations or do you get grants or donation donations no, no i don't think we've had any grants just donations yeah, just people we giving. had some funders 
early on, who um, benevolent, but they've been our primary source of donation, but we get some here, some there, but we rely on the cases coming back, the money coming back to us after the case is resolved. You've obviously seen, um, have you seen 13th? I have. Ava? I have. What, what, is, what is your thought on that? I mean, does it properly represent what's going on in the prison system? Well, I don't know that it represents what's going on in the prison system, but it definitely uh, represents the criminal legal system in terms of what happens and how it happened. Yeah. So why I, we have mass incarceration, mass criminalization, and yeah, you called it the the criminal legal system, not the criminal uh -huh. justice right. system. Explain. Right. I mean, I think I think we get the picture, but like, uh -huh. explain what you mean by that. I get it. Well, I know enough. Well, so my understanding is when you you use that term justice, it implies somehow that there's been a balance. There's some form of fairness that there's been a weighing of the facts and the outcomes pretty much represent the facts in some ways or some measure that is acceptable or fair. Yeah, right. But that's not the case. Not the case at all. And since it's not the case, one of the things that I believe help when we're trying to define something or really give a clear meaning is to give a name to something more connected to what actually it is. And so, yeah, it's criminal legal. Individuals made criminals criminals. What does that mean? We have actions that we deem criminal today. Tomorrow it may not be that way. The same legal processes that determine laws and says what's criminal and what's not criminal are a majority of people in privilege, mostly white males, making these decisions. Mm -hmm. And it's more accurate just to say it's the criminal legal system because that's basically all that it is. It's a lot of rituals and uh, policies that are administered by people in positions of power. And yeah. it has nothing to do with justice at this point. It could, but it may not be that system because I'm more interested in restorative, transformative justice. That's a to total different way of looking at things. Right now we have a retributive so-called justice system. Yeah, and it's hard to, I mean, tr truly as someone who's never spent a day mm -hmm. of his life in prison, but somebody that's very highly involved in the conversations happening around it. You know, for, for example, right now, I'm, 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 I shouldn't say obviously, because a lot of people aren't, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but I'm very anti-death penalty. Uh -huh. And, you know, there's a guy right now on death row in Texas that despite, despite so many conflicts in the evidence, I mean, we're talking tons of DNA mm -hmm. conflicts. Mm -hmm. They're moving forward with executing him here mm -hmm. in the next few days. And like, it's so hard to, you know, we're not, we're not, going to address police brutality right, or things like right, that in this right. conversation because that's not what we're talking right. about but it's just so hard how do you as someone who's been in it like it's just so hard to trust that the right thing is being done that's what i'm getting at like you know it's these are these are the people with the, the guns and the prisons and the cages and the mm -hmm. you know they in in the legal system on there we have they have the upper hand in every single way and yet i don't trust that they have right. the uh, our best interest in mind and you should and, so how, and, and so how do you stay? How do you not? 
Um, I mean, as someone who spent 26 years in for something that you did do, right? Uh-huh. Whether you intended to or not. Uh-huh. Like, how do you, uh, how should we and you, all of us, not become mm-hmm. uh, cynical and even rebellious yeah. against the yeah. system that we live within? Well, I mean, I put it to you like this. We live in this country. We're citizens of this country. We have a right to decide how it administers what, what we perceive to be justice. And that requires participation. And to me, and I could be wrong, but to me, it's about the people who we elect in positions of authority and power that have the responsibility to enact the will of the people. And until we put people in positions, progressive-minded people in positions of authority, to, we delegate that through our powers, through the vote. We'll continue to have what we have, right? And so... I believe that we, it's our responsibility to make sure that we shape the justice future. We have to do that. We have to stay engaged. Because if we say there's nothing we can do, then we must not believe in our own ability. Are we on the wrong side of the argument? If we know it's wrong and we can see that it's wrong, there are certain measures that we have to take. And that's why I do what I do. I mean, I take a risk. I paroled a life sentence. I had a life in 20 year sentence. I paroled that. I'm on parole for the rest of my life. Hmm. And I know that some of the things that I say, people who have been delegated authority, some don't like it. Sure. But I have to express what I know because part of that is being free. And if you are free, I believe you have an obligation to uphold certain principles of fairness that if you see something is wrong, you got to find a way, even if it just means giving a platform like what you're doing now to voices that are usually not heard. My my friend, uh, Cyrus Wilson, has been in prison for now 27 years uh, for something uh, that he did not do. Two young kids, afraid, said, hey, he did it. As adults, they come back and say, hey, he didn't do it. But Cyrus is still in prison. I'm not. Mm. Why is that? We had a young lady who was abused. She was a kid, Centoya Brown. Yeah. She got out Just last month. A few weeks month. ago, yeah. She never said I didn't do it. The facts are ugly in that case. But here's a man that we can't get one celebrity to say his name. And there's no evidence against him. The only two people who said he did it have recanted. Mm. There's no gun. There's no fingerprints. They recanted. They recanted on the record. And he's still in affidavit and in the courtroom. And the judge say, "I don't want. I don't believe them today." And we know, based upon brain science, that the frontal lobe doesn't stop developing until at least twenty-five. Some say up to thirty. Right. But Cyrus still sits in prison. Cyrus has a parole hearing coming up October the 16th. And I would encourage you, if you have time, to come to Riverbend Maximum Security Prison, be in by about 9 o'clock, October the 16th, and come in and see what happens when a person is trying to get out of prison in the state of Tennessee. I, I will. Man, it is one of the most dehumanizing experiences of being in prison that you can ever have. 
because you're not really there initially for them to determine your suitability to be released. You're there. And if you pled guilty or we were found guilty, they expect you to relive that crime again. And if you don't, in most cases, you won't get out. Mm. It just so happened we've been organizing for Cyrus with, with the Vanderbilt Prison Project, No Exceptions Prison Collective, uh, some people from the uh, NAACP chapter, NAACP chapter in Vanderbilt, and we just were able to get a lot of people involved. We've been on TV talking about his case, but I'm just saying that he's just one, uh, Joseph Webster. He saying he was innocent for the longest, said he didn't do it. They finally test the brick. His DNA is not there. He's still in prison. We got another guy, uh, Joseph Martin, been in prison. I mean, it's innocent people in prison. And so mm. that's the reason. That's I just want to say that's one of the reasons why we shouldn't we shouldn't get cynical or jaded or lose hope in because there's work to do. There's work to do that is meaningful and mm. You get to learn about how what you get to learn about what happens when people don't pay attention to what's happening in in the name of who they are, because it's the tax dollars that finance that budget for almost a billion dollars for the Tennessee Department of Corrections. There's more than thirty thousand people are caged, and you have people in positions of authority that have no interest in cutting cost. We have a parole board that has an $8 million budget. In, in uh, 2017, they had over 13,000 hearings. Less than, less than 3,000 people actually made parole that year. And 2,000 of them, of the nearly five that actually got out, expired their sentences. Why are we having all these hearings? They're called safety valve hearings that were designed by law to release the pressure off of the Tennessee Department of Corrections when they went above 95% capacity. They're using these hearings and nobody's getting out. Some mm. people are actually even being denied parole past their release eligibility dates. And you know the one catch-all thing that they get to say when they put you off? This is the short version. We're going to deny you parole for the seriousness of the offense. The seriousness of the offense was taken into account when the Tennessee legislature codified the charge, its seriousness, the felony nature of it, and the time or the punishment that they attach to it deals with the seriousness under the judicial process. The legislative process, the judicial process. But then you go off for parole, which is a, under the executive branch. They replicate that same idea to say you don't deserve to get out. Because it's wow. disrespect of the law. When I went up for parole, literally, I'm telling you, I had a resume of programs. It could touch the ground this high. And when they put me off, denied me parole, the chairman of the parole board, he said, there's nothing else I can tell you to do. What else can you do? But I'm going to deny you parole for the seriousness of the offense. That's what I had a life sentence for. This is happening every single workday of every day in the Tennessee Department of Corrections. And it's not just Tennessee. It's the United States of America. Why do you, you know, you've been around this a lot mm -hmm. more than I have. Um, if there's a succinct way to say it, kind of an abbreviated way mm -hmm. of saying it, why does America disproportionately imprison 
more people than anywhere else, any other modern, civilized, technologically advanced country. Uh, you and many other people fighting the way that you are mm -hmm. are proof that so mm -hmm. many of these people are in there innocently. They could mm -hmm. be getting out. They're not like, like I call okay. bullshit on this seriousness okay. of the crime sort of a thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. so it's, it's, it's all, it's all just like, it's all just things they have to say, you know, and, right. and we gotta, true. we gotta keep the, we gotta keep the bunks full, the cell, the true. cages full because uh -huh. the, the, everybody's making money, right? Everybody's got a piece of the pie. Uh -huh. Why do we, United States of America, Tennessee, and this country, right. why do we cage so many people for things they shouldn't be caged for for that yeah. long? Because what, in my opinion, what we have done is become reliant upon a retributive system that meaning I for I two for two type justice. When you look at the prison sector that it employs employees, the employees yeah. there, it 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 has more than Walmart and Ford and one other company combined. And when you're talking about reducing the prison population, you're talking about removing jobs, jobs. from individuals who are not marketable. Understand that a lot of people working in the prison industrial complex as officers could not work anywhere else. And so when you look at how we designed it, is that every human being in the Tennessee Department of Corrections body is worth twenty-seven to thirty-some thousand dollars a year. A year. That person's body is worth more in a cage than a young person, nineteen to twenty-two, who has no education working an average job. Yep. That man's, a woman's body is worth more than that person's income to the tax base. So we're talking about billions of dollars here. We're not just, look, it's not a moral issue because America has always, since 1619, trafficked it bodies. Mm. They've been in the business of yeah. bodies for profit. So it's not new. Yeah. It's just that right. we we refuse to see it for what it is as long as we can see that as an inmate, as long as we can see that as a prisoner, a criminal, a convict, a felon. Yep. And so we use felonism to deny that person education while he or she is in prison, to deny that person a, a, a minimum wage income. To deny that person a connection with his or her family in certain situations when you transport that person from one end of the state to the next end of the state, or if it's federal, from one state to the next state. See, you can do this because what's, felonism is the legal discrimination, the legal denial, the legal act of preventing a person who has been convicted of a crime from experiencing what... Is what would be equity, what would be opportunity, what would be enfranchisement. Felonism allows for this denial, this refusal of access that's held by the privileged ones who are disseminating the right to do this. And it's cool because as long as I can say you're infamous, and that's what they call you when you get convicted. You're infamous, meaning I no longer have a character. Mm. 
So you can lie on me and I can't sue you for libel because I don't have a character because you said I'm no longer human. And so you remember three-fifths of a man? Yep. When you become an inmate, you lose your vote. They count your body, the consensus, so that they can determine how much money to appropriate in various different districts. Yeah, you pay taxes, but you don't count, except for the money part of it all. And long, long time ago in America, taxation without representation was, was an issue. Sure. It was a revolutionary issue, you see. And so, I mean, imagine just in Tennessee that over 300,000 people can't vote. What if just 200,000 of them could vote? It change everything. And so, how do you keep people in positions of power who are not necessarily the majority in the sense of the majority of, 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 of ideas, the best ideas? You disenfranchise as many of those who would be in opposition to them as you can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is just the way it is. And if any of what I'm saying is incorrect or inaccurate or it doesn't make sense, then I'd love to be challenged. I would love to be in a dialogue to help me to understand why the way I see it isn't the way it really is. You know, we're, we're talking slavery never stopped, right? Right. That's what slavery never stopped. We've that's, been doing this since 1619. And we, we just call it something different now. Right. And that's sanitizing the language so that, that, that it's easier to accept it. Of course. Because we 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 abhor the idea of slavery, but the same people that would say, "I'm so glad slavery is gone." I know these people; they are so okay with how the prison system is run, and they even use people that I know, people that I love, mm-hmm. have used very dehumanizing, yeah. disenfranchising mm-hmm. sort of language about mm-hmm. these people. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't deserve to get a living wage. Mm-hmm. Look at the thing, look at the crime they committed. They don't deserve mm-hmm. to get uh, you know, clothes and a shower right. to be treated well. Right. And they're fine mm-hmm. with the way that we have dehumanized mm-hmm. people to the point of right. like, they're just, an- like literally, they're just yeah. animals in there right. and let them rot right. away for all we mm-hmm. fucking care because right. of what they did. And mm-hmm. But those same people would say, oh, I'm so glad slavery is gone. Yeah, and so that means they're on the one hand blinded, but then on the other hand, there is this disconnect from the humanity of the individual. Because I, I'm here to tell you that for every person who has a bad day and ends up in prison, if you define them by the worst thing that they've ever done, yeah. then just leave America. Yeah. Because America doesn't have a pretty history. Mm-mm. In fact, if every other country, particularly Japan, just, just let's use Japan. Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. If they reminded you, you bombed us every time that you tried to enter into a conversation, a dialogue, you wouldn't want to hear that, right? Yep. If America had to hear about slavery every other day that somebody is trying to critique the country, they wouldn't want to hear that. But this is what they do to formerly incarcerated individuals. Yeah. And it, it it is funny too, if you think back, this is sort of off topic, but not really actually, mm-hmm. as we talk about dehumanizing mm-hmm. people and the continuation really of slavery under different language. Mm-hmm. You know, after uh, World War II, you know, in the years after that, Germany dished out 
tens of millions of dollars right. to Jews. Right. Right. That's it's true. kind of like reparations. Right. We did it. We did it to uh, Japanese concentration uh, camps. To, to the Japanese internment uh -huh. camps. Mm -hmm. So we, every. Every family, maybe individual, but at least every family, uh -huh. you know, afflicted by that got right. twenty something thousand dollars. Right, and yet so many people today are opposed to the idea of reparations. Right, it's, yeah. Again, it gives you an idea of why, like, it's so sad and it's so crazy, but it almost yeah. it's not surprising that yeah. we have continued um, because, again, the the, the criminal legal system mm -hmm. disproportionately affects people of color. Right, every time. Right, and and you know the promise of a forty acre and a mule which was a bill that never became law. If you just were to give us the equivalent of that today, who knows what could happen? I mean, when a people come out of slavery into what is supposed to be, and, and, and I like to say those who were enslaved because they weren't slaves, they were enslaved. And there's a difference because on That's some level, slave, yeah. like as if somehow that was that designation, right. that's wrong. But the people who are of, the African descent who are in America now, many say they're black Americans or African Americans, there are no other people like this anywhere because of that experience. And the narrative continues to be shaped. And without wealth, there are just certain things you can't do in this country, which takes us back to the bail fund issue, the National Community Bail Fund. Wealth-based detention it's not just a jail thing. Some people believe that that's the beginning of mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. But on another level, whatever I can cage, I feel as though I can control. Mm. And so a lot of this is based around the control. But the other level is for the male, particularly the black male, there's a form of emasculation that comes with incarceration. Because there is this ritual, which I think Martin Luther King is 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 uh, credited with, with it with it, which is called thingification. There's a process that when they take your civilian clothing and remove it and put that Department of Correction jail garment on you, this ritual that transforms you into this system thing also affects your psyche. One quick example. Six months after I was out, my mother called me to the, I was living with my mom. She called me to the table, kitchen table. She said, son, I don't know what's wrong, but why is it that every day when you come home, you shut the door to that room? Never dawned on me that that's what I was doing. I reflected upon that. And I, ha I remember having a class, a biology class, psychology class in school, in prison, we studied Pavlo. And these dogs, and mm -hmm. he would ring a bell mm -hmm. before he fed these dogs. And they, after 60 some days, he could just ring the bell and these dogs would salivate. They have a couple of forms of conditioning, classical condition, conditioning and operative conditioning. What's happening to human beings who for years at a time, they're hearing these keys, yep. chow hall, keys, chow hall, violence, Chow hall keys and they're being released back into society. If dogs can be conditioned in 63 days just with the sound of a bell and being fed, what's happening to human beings? So 26 I, years. And, and 
any number of right, years. Sure. Because I'm thinking about it like they want to know why is the recidivism rate so high? Yeah. There's no rehabilitation. Nope. Re rehabilitation is a misnomer. It implies that you at some point had the ability. R-E, the prefix mean back. Re, go back. If you never were, there's nothing to go back to. So there are two different types of models. Rehabilitation deals with behavior. You can fake that long enough to get out of prison. But transformation, which is a model, the transformative model, deals with the inner being and change. The person who is transformed, which happened for me, is a person who can experience a moment of stress and think through that process and not make a bad choice, whereas that person who didn't transform, the minute he or she enters into that stress component, they revert back to the mm. mentality that was never changed. And I call this IDD, Institutionalized Dependency Disorder, mm. because that ritual process that I just talked about yeah. is the beginning of what conditions you to depend on the state for everything that you need. And if you are dependent and you're released into a society and you don't have the skills, the ability, the support of a community, you're gonna go back. Mm -hmm. And in one year, 33% of all people in Tennessee is 33 or 46, they return. But in five years, they say 75% of all people who are released from prison will go back. 75%. Now, you would say that's failing, right? In one sense. If you had a business. Oh, yeah, sure. If seven out of every 10 of your products was defected, you go out of business. Mm -hmm. But because this isn't a failure for the overall system, because we need these bodies to justify these bloated budgets, mm -hmm. these jobs that persons have who eat off of this system. Yep. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, oh yeah. So we got a lot going on And here. it further, I mean, it further proved <laughs> to them, they're able to share a message, which is, see, look, these people are just bad. Right. Look, see, they were out for a year, two right. years, three years, did the same thing over again, they're back in. Right. So they're benefiting from that person, right. the recidivism rate. Absolutely. But also, they're able to say, they're able to say, see, look, we need this prison, we, we, right. need the, we need the level of, uh, of a prison system that we have because they're just going to keep coming back right. fully ignoring the fact that mm -hmm. there, like you said, there is no, we are setting them up for failure right. with a lack of any tools and resources right. for rehabilitation. Right. Exactly. Um, but what if we had community restorative or transformative justice that asks a different question mm -hmm. that ask who was harmed? How do we approach healing? Who was the harmer? How do we connect with that person and figure out what was happening that he or she would even be in a position to cause this harm? Mm. And as a community, how do we create what we want the outcome to be? And when you as a community decide what this looks like, you take it out of the jurisdiction of the so-called state. Because when you're talking about the state, you're talking about an abstract. Who is the state? Sure. We don't know who the state is. The no. state versus so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Yeah. But you all are having outcomes that the community doesn't always agree with. 
So we have to have a different look at this thing, and I think we can do it. It just takes more people paying attention, listening, asking questions, and deciding what kind of America do we want to live in. I want to live in an America that's fair. I want to live in an America that's not going to judge me based on my worst possible, you know, the worst thing that I've ever done. I want to live in an America that will look at the skill sets that I have and will match me with an occupation that will maximize the value that I can give. That's what we're trying to do with the work that, that I'm involved in. Nobody, nobody wants to be judged by the worst thing they've ever done. Here's the reality. We've all wanted to do something. We've imagined, we've dreamt of, we've gotten really close to doing something that could change our life forever, right? Every single person. This is, I, I'm, a, I'm a progressive. I don't like the word liberal uh, for a lot of reasons, but so many people on the left are so quick to pounce on other people for the things that, now some of them, they're really bad. We're like, let's, let's find justice here. Let's, this person needs to be held accountable. But we're so quick to jump on people, right? And I'm just, I want to be a voice in my, at least in my sphere of influence saying, I'm not saying we shouldn't go after that person. We shouldn't seek justice there. I'm saying, let's cool our jets a little bit. Because each one of us has done something that if the world found out about it, we'd be fucking terrified and embarrassed. No doubt right? about it. And, and I, I, just like you, I don't want to be judged by the worst thing I've ever done. And my thing is different than your thing. And my things are different than your things. But regardless, right. like we want to be, we want to be known by what, who we are consistently, the kind of person we want to right. be, the kind of person we're becoming. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I love that message. Let's, let's wrap up with this. All right. What's the dream? <laughs> you know, you're, you're out of prison. Your sentence was, you mm -hmm. said a lifetime plus 20 years. Yeah. You got out in 26. Thank mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. And now you're here, but you're still on, you know, you're still in, uh -huh. uh, what is the word used? Under parole, in parole. You're still, yeah, for the rest of your life. And so there are restrictions to who you can be and what you can do. What do you, what's the dream? You're involved okay. in so many incredible things. Yes. I'm so encouraged, so yes. excited to get to yes. know you more. What, what is the dream um, though? If you could snap your fingers okay. and make it happen, what does that look like? Well, so, you know, DA Dream, the dream, that's my nickname. They called me that when I was on the oh. inside. Yeah. So for me, the dream looks like people who are caged will get an opportunity to live on this side. And in getting that opportunity, that they will be enfranchised, they will have a bridge, a community support where they can come back and give the best of who they are to whatever community they live in. Because there's some great people on the inside, even though good I'm, I'm talking about skillful individuals, talented individuals who messed up. Mm. So this involves compassion. This involves forgiveness. This involves the some would say the better angels of society rising to the occasion and saying, you know, he, she has been there long enough. Let's welcome, welcome them back into the community. And let let love be a part of what human, the human experience is. Mm. Let, let love, compassion guide the way that we make our decisions and, 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 and as much as possible, remove fear. Because the last thing I will say 
is that I know when I'm operating in fear and I know when I'm operating in love. Fear pushes me away. Fear pushes people into hiding places. Fear puts people in prisons. Mm. But when I love something, I want it next to me. When I love something, I want to protect it. When I love something, I want to see it grow. I want to see it become. If we could just break it down and understand the difference. And that's how I know when I'm being me. And I check myself. When I'm trying to be like, oh, I ask myself, what are you afraid of? Mm. And then I say, I don't know. Let me, hey, man, I'm sorry about that. I apologize. I didn't mean to. How can I help you? You know, I, I drive around and I don't honk my own horn and I, I don't necessarily want anybody to know this, but I want you to know this. I keep a stack of ones. I see so many homeless people. Yeah. And I feel so fortunate mm. that I have a place to lay my head. Mm-hmm. I live in a home. I have a decent amount of income. I travel from time to time. I'm not starving, but when I see them and I know that I've had biological brothers who used to be them, I can't drive by them without at least offering something. And I may give it to them, I say, hey, hi, what's your name? My name is so-and-so, because I want to recognize that person's humanity. And that's, that's, that's the dream for That's me. beautiful. Well, that's a beautiful dream. Um, Raheem, I'm so grateful for you Thank and you. your work. Thank you. And we'll do this again in some sure. way, maybe another podcast. Sure. Or we'll do something together. Sure. I'm real excited to see how Let's Give a Damn can come alongside uh, right. what you guys are doing. Thank you for sharing the Let's Give a Damn family. Thank you. They're going to learn a lot. Thank you. Um, and hopefully uh, yeah. they will you know, support you all in terms, yeah. whether it's financial or following yeah, you guys, great. sharing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope to bring All right. uh, some noise and uh, uh-huh. uh, excitement your way. Well, great. Thank I so appreciate much. that. Also, I want to plug my book, Save Your Own yeah, yeah. Life. Save Your Own Life, Choosing the Right Path is Not Always Clear by Raheem is on Amazon. And it's, it's for youth who have gone down the wrong path. But uh, it's something that I put together. It's a small book, but but it's, it's anecdotal, my poetry my thoughts and um, i'll link to it in the show notes for un- sure unheard voices outreach.org nashvillebellfund.org so you can kind of see what our work is about and i really appreciate this opportunity for to be here and to be able to talk and share with you because i i think we need to do more of this and i i really appreciate it well, thanks for spending time with me well thank you thank you very much Dear friends, thank you so much for joining Rahim and me for this meaningful conversation. I hope you've learned a bit. I know I have learned a lot. I'm so excited to see Rahim's work grow and his influence expand. Please follow Rahim on Twitter at Rahim Buford if you enjoyed our conversation and want to learn more about him. And I'm going to put a link to a fantastic video of Rahim's story in the show notes. Or you can find it by visiting unheardvoicesoutreach.org then clicking on the About button, and then clicking on the Our Founder button. It's fantastic. You can find links and more information about this podcast conversation and all things Let's Give a Damn by going to letsgiveadam.com. If you love what we're doing on this show, please tell a friend, or maybe leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or consider giving us a few dollars each month to support the production of this show by going to patreon.com slash letsgiveadamn right now. This podcast episode was created by Chad Snavely and yours truly. The music is by our friend and podcast guest alum, Propaganda. I can't wait to spend time with you all next week. Love you. Peace.